Welcome to the Transatlanticist Politics Podcast at the American Centrum in Hamburg, Germany. As always, I'm your host, Andrew Sola. With me today to discuss recent developments in the European Union is the transatlanticists resident EU expert, Dr. Gunter Donner. Welcome, Gunter. It's great to have you back. Thanks again for having me. So today we're going to talk about the energy war in Europe. Of course, this war began with the Russian invasion of Ukraine in February, and this triggered a number of responses from EU nations. In addition to sanctions against Russian businesses, industry, and energy exports, individuals with close ties to the Kremlin have also been sanctioned. Furthermore, the brand new Nord Stream 2 gas pipeline from Russia to Germany was completed, but never switched on. In recent weeks, we've seen explosions at the Nord Stream 1 and 2 gas pipelines under the Baltic Sea, and these are still being investigated. We've seen a scramble to fill up gas storage facilities in Germany and across Europe. OPEC Plus decided to lower its production of oil, leading to additional fears about inflation and energy shortages. And this was interesting, too, because, of course, Biden asked a favor of uh, Saudi Arabia to not cut production. But, of course, they said, no, we're going to do so anyway, which could lead to broader ramifications of the U.S.-Saudi relationship in the future. There's some good news, though. A new gas pipeline between Norway and Poland was opened up in the last couple of weeks, and reports say that German gas storage levels are at over 90%, which some suggest will be enough for Germany to survive the winter without any serious rationing. There are so many different perspectives from which we can analyze the situation, and Dr. Donner will give us many of the country-specific perspectives. But I just want to start quickly by talking about the EU as a whole and some of the different political blocks within the EU. So as with many issues that affect Europe, the energy war has exposed some tensions in the European community. On the one hand, you have anti-Russian hardliners composed mostly of East European countries, who lived under the yoke of the Soviet Union for decades. In this group, of course, we see countries like Poland, Estonia, Latvia, and Lithuania. There are countries who are taking a strong but less aggressive approach. I would include here Germany, Italy, and perhaps the Czech Republic. In these countries, there remain politicians who support dialogue and energy trade with Russia despite the invasion. For example, the left wing of the ruling SPD party in Germany published a statement about a month ago urging dialogue with Moscow, as well as a cessation of any arms shipments. In the Czech Republic, there have been protests about the rise in energy costs. Italy also has political leaders, namely Berlusconi and Salvini, whom we discussed last week. Berlusconi and Salvini have in the past and indeed in the present expressed their affection for Vladimir Putin. The final group of EU nations is a group of one, the outlier country, which is Hungary, whose leader, Viktor Orban, has been sympathetic to Putin's claims about the justification of his war. I guess the big question here is if these cracks in the EU can be further exploited by Moscow or if the EU will maintain a mostly united front, which Ursula von der Leyen, the president of the EU Commission, takes great pains to repeat that indeed there is a united front. Anyway, that's a brief overview of the EU picture. So Gunther, why don't you start by discussing some individual countries and the complex politics that govern these countries. And let's take where you live, Germany. Uh, well, yes, I think it's 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 worthwhile to to have a look at how could it ever happen that we get into the present day situation 
I mean, uh, if you look back through history, publications, the press, whatever, there have been warnings galore that becoming too much dependent on Russian supplies may in the end lead to a dangerous situation. Those warnings came from wherever, the East European countries, especially the three Baltic countries you mentioned, and Poland, and of course from the US, trying even to to stop Germany from opening the second North Stream gas pipeline. Yet it it was done. It had been. It's an. It's a very old project. I mean, gas from from Russia or former times the Soviet Union has been flowing west since the sixties. The Druzhba pipeline is very old, but it was never designed or able to create such an amount of Russian gas on the market that the the Russians virtually became dominant. And I think this is the first thing to keep apart. Do you import partial supplies from there? You can do it, you can leave it. You'll never become totally depending on this. But the, the, the opposite happened. I mean, let's face it, it's, um, it's a German political decision that had been done, as I said, when the Soviet Union was still there, continued after the, uh, the, the, the Soviet Union's downfall, was extended and was deepened when the Putin regime started in '99. Well, what is it? It's basically two factors. It's the one is a blue-eyed belief in changing the methods of tyrannies by offering cooperation and certain advantages, namely Western currency. Uh, the idea is, as long as we trade, we don't shoot uh, uh, at one another. The idea has its pros and cons. On the other hand, of course, you have to weigh how deep am I going to to go into this trap? Can I withdraw? Or is it impossible? So the other uh, variant is, uh, next to the blue-eyed belief, is uh, the active negation of the true character of a despot and his realm. Schroeder, a German chancellor of the uh, SPD, notably not their left wing, once called this guy a flawless democrat. Certainly, that was never the case, and it, it will never be the case. So for whatever political or personal advantage. History may may show us. Another vision, and that goes to show that all big parties, CDU and SPD, were involved in this and uh, bear the the responsibility for the present-day situation, is the intentional negligence to disturb one's political strategy, please all, address all, do as little as possible. That was Mrs. Merkel. By pleasing all, you have to see that energy bills have to be manageable, as cheap as possible. Don't touch hot potatoes. Never make people angry. And it was it was Merkel who, at the same time, stopped nuclear energy and energy production uh, from coal. Here in Hamburg, where I live, we have probably the, the world's most advanced, advanced coal power station, it costs us billions. It was never put into to use. It's there. You can't even visit it. It's a museum for ideological reasons. And so the, the third component we need is ideology, ideology. And that was the greenwashing of society. Energy was equaled with capitalist production at the environment's detriment. A very simplistic idea. The idea of we have to cut we have to cut CO2 emissions, which is, is, is tangible for everyone. But could at best have been done? How could you do it without risking your welfare state, your wealth, your productivity and whatever? Surely that could never have evaded nuclear energy. But that was the, green, the Greens' uh, basic idea that that is the devil in person. And so it, had to, it was out of, out of the question. Merkel became the one to stop it. All signals, all, all indicators were set for a disaster. The only thing that was missing was the will of Putin. I don't need your money anymore, and I will now show you where you are. And that is how Germany got into this trap. So we have to blame Putin. It's clear it's a weapon for him, but for a critical person, that was cl- clear from the beginning. 
And I think what we have to do is we would have to learn how far shall we admit tyrannies, political regimes, which are so unpredictable and so constructed in so, such a different manner from our way of political ideals and, and, and values. How can we ever, for future times, avoid just repeating the same sort of error that we, that we have been doing for the last 25 years uh, with Russia and energy? Future, again, will show whether politicians of today are able and willing to learn lessons, or do they still think just well a week ahead and, and leave it there? So let's just stop there and talk about a very local issue. But since this podcast is done in Hamburg, let's talk about mm -hmm. the lessons that politicians are or are not learning by looking at this current kerfuffle about selling uh, 35% or major percentage of the Hamburg Port Authority to China's mm -hmm. state-owned logistics company, Costco. I've heard a number of people say, oh, the Chinese basically threatened if they don't get a huge chunk of the ownership, they'll just mm -hmm. send all their ships to Rotterdam. And no argument besides that. And my immediate reaction was like, hey, haven't you learned anything from the, the recent history with natural gas? You're going to succumb to economic pressure, yes, but it's political pressure as well. There's got to be a way of dealing with the situation where you look at the long-term consequences, not the short-term consequence of what will happen sure. to Hamburg Harbor. You could potentially find new customers, or maybe this is just a bluff by Costco. Who knows? Anyway, the powers that be, namely the mayor of Hamburg and Olaf Scholz, who was previously mayor of Hamburg and now, of course, the chancellor of Germany, fully support the sale. Mm -hmm. Politicians like green politicians uh, do not, of course. So what do you think about this situation? Are German politicians learning their lessons? Well, the thing is, do the, are they willing to learn their lessons? Or are lessons to them just a nasty thing the public demands every now and then? I'd like to go a bit one step further. The corona pandemic and the crisis with delivery problem from Asia and above all from China, of course, should have taught us that the next to total dependency we have on China in many aspects of because we want we want everything and we want it cheap is very dangerous. And this by far exceeds the the, the level of what's now what we are now going to discuss with the partial change of ownership of a company running parts of the Hamburg Harbour, which is rather close to the Hamburg state. Uh, when I heard about it, I, it, it bereft me of speech. I mean, how could you repeat? How could you seriously repeat the idea? If you now look at the typical compromise that is now being discussed, uh, I think as we speak, they reduce the uh, intended Chinese part from 35 to less than 20, 25. 20, 24.9. Yeah. And that is exactly the legal threshold for the owner. If you exceed 25, you have influence on the daily business routine and decision-making of a company. And again, it repeats, and it adds, it adds really perfectly well to what we've just been discussing with the, with the, with the energy problem. There is a whatever grand coalition. It's a rather murky one. Now the CDU-run state of Schleswig-Holstein is happy with the Chinese there because they, they want uh, uh, Hamburg, which is their much richer neighbour, uh, to make a quick a quick buck. And because th that could then stabilise the north of Germany, traditionally industrial, in industrial terms, very poor. We have too much energy due to the to the wind farms, which we can't export to the south where it's needed, because there, there are no there's no grid suitable for it. But but we don't have the the amount of productive industry as as has the German South. So there is again the the cooperation like Merkel Schroeder that it's now Tschentscher Schulz uh, Günther the guy is called Schleswig-Holstein. 
they, of course, belittle the Chinese influence. Well, what would it do? I mean, they give their money, and but every now and then you can hear you 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 can hear remarks as, "What would they do if we just flatly deny their request? May they just run away and go elsewhere, Rotterdam or wherever?" I mean, if I expect partnership to flourish on an equal footing. If my customer threatens me, you do what I just tell you or I leave you for good, maybe one should stop having relations with these with these people right now. But I don't think they will stop this. The Green Party, uh, and, and much to their credit, I'm far from uh, ever voting them, but, but uh, the Green Party has at least their... They're ruling echelon. They have, in a very pronounced fashion, criticised this. You you hear very little from the Liberals because parts of German industry are just hooked on the Chinese bait. I mean, if you wish to sell... As they were hooked uh, on the cheap energy gas gas bait. Indeed. It's the same thing playing out again. And now it's China. We are so over-focused on China. And we should have just learned what is going on in China. They are now marching closer to Mao Zedong than to the days of whatever pseudo economic liberalism. Okay, so Gunter, Gunter, let's let's we another yeah. episode would be about the future of the EU and China relations, but we need to bring this mm. back to Germany. And as we all know, oftentimes politics actually just boils down to very simple things like how much citizens will be paying to heat their homes or to fill up their cars with gas over the next, well, over the winter. So until, let's say, March or April. Do you think Germany is prepared to make it through the winter without serious disruptions? I, I think I think and hope that the gas reserves will, will suffice. Uh, what I'm not too sure about is whether or not there may be a very short, very short periods of blackouts, but not here in the north, because we, as as I just said, we have too much electric energy. But further down south, where there is far more industry requiring huge amounts of electricity for the uh, for the machinery, um, that is one thing. The other is the the gas price. So what a year or so ago had been advocated as why make it more expensive and people will, will, will leave their car at home and use public transport? So the idea is there were politicians afraid of gas becoming too cheap. I remember when in 2020, I filled up for a litre of diesel for less than one year. Oh, litre. I remember. Those were the good old uh, days, Gunter. <laughs> yes. Uh, but they were there for market reasons, because the international demand due to the corona recession uh, being unpredictable had collapsed. So the the then active politicians, and many from whatever, uh, said, wow, this is a disaster. Now people will drive around like mad. Again, the idea of making it more expensive is older than the ongoing crisis. What we now have is we have a fantastic network of public transport generally speaking here in Hamburg, it's outstanding. If we were to have the problems England has outside of London, or America has, my memories are from past decades, but I think public transport is still not the the strongest thing there, um, especially in rural areas. So you are much more reliant reliant on your car. But again, people are gradually admitting, well, we have to pay. They don't like the government, but they have no idea what to do otherwise. But so in general, you don't anticipate in the winter things getting so bad that a critical number of German voters go out on the streets to demand a change in German policy towards Russia. I, I, I overheard interviews. Journalists were courageous enough to, to, to get closer to these demonstrators in eastern Germany which is not not uh, a thing I, I recommend. And, of course, to blame where the Americans again. This is, this is folklore from the old Bolshevik days in eastern Germany and the, new, the neo-fascist days of I the I just want to jump in here. When I hear the, the argument that somehow someone else is to blame, I think of getting beaten up on the street 
And as the person is punching you, they're like, that person over on the other side of the street made me beat you up. It's like, no, I'm just standing over here. I have nothing to do with this. It's, it's bizarre. It's bizarre. Okay, so, but, but we're not expecting any, any U-turns by the German government due to the energy war this, this summer. Well, that's some good news. But let's move on quickly to now our second country, of course, country number two, or the French would think actually now they're the most important country in Europe. Germany and France are one and two, but France. How is France dealing with the energy war? Uh, well, in a typical French manner, they do what to them is viewed in at a very short time period politically the most the most attractive. So Macron, legally, he has far more powers than a German, any German politician. He limited the price of gas. Another thing is, and you have to bear in mind, that in France there are probably two networks of filling stations. The rather one with the fine brand names on, they are quite expensive, and if they're on the motorway, they're extremely expensive. I, I paid uh, €1.70 five years ago. But you don't go there. I don't know why they exist and how they can exist. But you go to a supermarket, a, a huge thing. Carrefour. Carrefour or Leclerc is the finest. The wine department is is wonderful. And they all have filling stations. And there they sell the stuff, and they used to do so, 35 cents per litre less in order to attract people to go there. And once there, they go into the shop and they make their, 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 their daily shopping. So that was one thing. Of course, that would have... The prices would have, they would have risen there as well. So Macron limited it. it he put he put a lid on it. Right. So so the other I would say advantage that France has over Germany and how they're reacting to this is, of course, France has always been a big believer and investor in nuclear power. Indeed, yeah. But Macron was the first to dither on this point. He was a bit, he was a bit here and there, and he started. Uh, his career in his first uh, period in office uh, with a bit of I'm I'm a huge uh, eco-politician. It was never an outspoken uh, thing of I reduce it, but they neglected it. Now, uh, lots of French nuclear power plants aren't working. Uh, they are not producing. They should have been upgraded, repaired, uh, better equipped, whatever. And instead, typical Macron, he made huge ideas very precise ones for the future. A new type of smaller power plants producing less nuclear waste, which is so 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 such a big problem. But all this is, is uh, wonderful music for the future. At the time being, the French are having a problem because their nuclear power stations aren't, aren't producing enough. And I would expect blackouts rather in France than uh, in Germany. Really? The the thing with the windmills, or the the wind farms, as as you know, the wind farms is that offshore wind farms in France are very difficult because of the deep sea. Mm -hmm. We have the North Sea that that, that is manageable, but then we were there on the Atlantic coast. It goes down hundreds of meters, and that just not the place for for wind park. You see many wind parks now in France. Uh, what they still do not really have is uh, photovoltaic, because if you own property in France and wish to install this on your roof, you go through a hell of bureaucracy uh, with a still energy monopolist and uh, uh, Electricité de France. All this still absolutely in state hands. 20 years ago, the EU said you need competition. Nothing. No competition. So France has again gone her own ways, Macron's strategy is crystal clear. He wants to please the public with prices as palatable as possible. But again, there is there is no expectation that Macron will change course on his support for Ukraine. He strongly supports the European Commission in bunching all the gas purchases and by giving really defining a ceiling for prices. And this is now the ongoing rather massive conflict between Germany and France. The Germans know that we need far more gas than the French because they could fix their power plants again if they just, well, get up and do it. 
But the Germans have no have no alternative. So their industry uh, is based on gas mostly, especially the industry consuming most. So what the Germans are dancing around is, yes, we in principle would like a European carbon purchase, but in when it's really when there is no gas available on the market at this price, the ceiling, we would like to pay a bit more. Hmm. Uh, and the French hate it because the French now ex- call this lack of German solidarity. Mm-hmm. So indeed, uh, this energy question has divided France and Germany on this issue rather rather notably. Yeah, well, well, that's interesting because these various cutouts for specific countries in order to maintain <laughs> yeah. European unity, which is von der Leyen talks about all the time, as she must, job. takes us to our third country. And I want to talk about Hungary next, mm. because Hungary was given all sorts of exceptions in previous mm-hmm. EU sanctions against Russia, like, well, Russia couldn't export uh, an automobile gasoline or something, except to Hungary. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, so that there was always a cutout, so Hungary didn't veto the entire legislation. So, why don't you talk a little bit about Hungary, the the black sheep of Europe? Well, uh, it's it's absolutely it's horrific what you see there in Hungarian politics. It's a klepto, it's a kleptocracy of a guy who calls himself a Hungarian right person. If you look at Hungarian history, Hungary's arch foe in history has been one, this is Russia, in whatever form of government, the Tsarist Empire, the Stalinists, or whoever. Uh, so he, of all people, chose Russia as the big the big friend of Hungary, which is ridiculous. If you look at more recent uh, events in Hungarian history, in '56, the Soviets uh, and the KGB massacred thousands of Hungarians. But, but this shows that Orban may pose as a right-winger, he is uh, he's a corrupt individual, and his whole family became rich. He was he was uh, nothing uh, in the early nineties, and now he's uh, his family is extremely well to do. He's never explained to the public how that could have happened. Olaf, the uh, European uh, police agency for corruption, had investigations into this, and there is still ongoing rumours that billions of support will never be paid out to Hungary. What is the case, however, due to the principle of a unanimous vote in many issues, above all uh, sanctions, we still have to, uh, there still has to be a carrot in the room and not just a stick. This is to me a living example that the the basic principle of how a a EU majority is brought about has to be changed. An individual like Orban, bought by Putin or not, or uh, doesn't matter, can really stop European progress, or at least stop it for a while. Uh, And this should not be the case. Uh, If there is a clear majority, there should be a clear majority. That is a basic democratic principle. But, of course, this is the future, for the future to, 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 to perform. What we have now is... Hungary is in economic uh, is, is is bumping along the bottom line. It's uh, almost at the end of, of of its tether. Prices are going through the through the ceiling. The inflation is enormous. The devaluation of the foreign is catastrophic, and of course, foreign investments, direct investments, assuring employment, will be thought about twice. Would you, as an investor, now go to Hungary, and for what reason? By the way, I just want to stop you right there. Did did Hungary not join the euro currency because they didn't meet the standards or because they didn't want to? I never met the standards. No, no, no chance. But now they've they've turned around the 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 explanation. The the euro is is the epitome of global capitalism, and the foreign is Hungarian strength for whatever reason. I mean, their political explanations. Ten years ago, no, ten years, ten, ten years ago, eight years ago, uh, the then uh, Hungarian finan- minister of, the, of economic affairs called the quagmire he had created a fairy tale economy. Hmm. Um, in, a, in an interview with, with the BBC, much laughter was the, the consequence, and that's never improved. 
the government there lives the traditional way of a pretender. They rekindle traditional hate patterns, be this dark-skinned people, be this European bureaucrats, be this American Jews, uh, uh hate figure number, number one. And to all of this comes Putin. I think Orban wasn't really happy that Putin started a war in earnest. But had Putin not started the war, he would have gladly appeared next to Putin in order to get the blessing. Hmm. Because ruling like Putin to him must have a certain fascination. He is in power, and let, don't forget it, we have to mention that because the opposition has just been catastrophic. The United Opposition just lost the uh, last lost, election. They, they disintegrated and they should have never been united in the first place because part of this union had been an openly, an openly extreme fascist party and a violent one, uh, Jobbik, they're called, which means better. They, are, they don't play a massive role anymore, but they were part of the anti-Orban coalition. So he was hated from the extreme, extreme right as well. Again, to me, he isn't a, a classic right politician, but a classic a corrupt politician. Okay, so, but Hungary, despite trying to throw a wrench in the works of EU unity, they do have some power, but not enough to change no. the overall trajectory, which is to continue supporting Ukraine against Russia. But let's take us now to our fourth, and we'll talk about the grouping of countries now. These are the very vociferous and strong anti-Russian countries. Mm -hmm. And we have the Baltics, of course, plus Poland, who are arguably Ukraine's most fervent supporters, both in terms of politics as well as other types of financial and military mm -hmm. support. Oh, yeah. That's very interesting because Poland is a big, the biggest, by far the biggest and most important of these countries. One shouldn't forget that under the PIS government, which uh, uh, is of the traditional Polish, very right nature, arch-conservative, very pro-Catholic religion, very pro-Polish nationalism, quite on the brink of uh, cutting out democratic standards in certain parts, at least prior to the war. So Poland once used to be put almost into the same bag as, as was Orban. Mm -hmm. That has changed because the Poles far more intelligent in, in their political presentation. They follow a different scheme. Their ideologist, Kaczynski, is a member of parliament, what he does. He has no real function in the government pulling strings, certainly. Whereas Orban is Orban, and sooner or later, Hungary could be Orban. Uh, and it's just Orban and his family. So they are fiercely apart now. There is no... We have the so-called Visegrad region, that was Slovakia and, and the Czech Republic. That is finished. They were anti-Brussels, critical of Brussels, though gladly taking Brussels and funded. That was always necessary for all of them. Yes, and now Poland uh, stands out now. Poland has done an un incredible job taking up uh, Ukrainian refugees, integrating them. And if you think back a year when, when Putin and Lukashenko tried to, to drive refugees from the middle or far east, imported from Turkey to Belarus over the border into EU countries to destabilize them or to create public, uh, a public problem, uh, they were very strict in terms of taking them up. Uh, uh, that was much criticised. They were in terms of every now and then they were, might have been quite brutal. Now they showed a totally different, uh, they turned the page and showed a totally different image by integrating millions of Ukrainian people. Of course, that is quite easy. They can normally communicate easily with one another. There is no physical difference. And the Ukrainians mostly are young, the elderly or young women with kids. The others were just men. Gunter, I know there's a, a there is a racial and religious mm. reason for this difference in attitude towards Ukrainian refugees and the ref refugees from the Middle East. So the point that I just wanted to focus on is that Poland 
or pull in strength, as it were, or the reason for its very aggressive attitudes towards Russia is is their own personal history, and of that's course. connected to Polish nationalism, deeply, and and their pride, and also connected to Catholicism. After all, the communists mm-hmm. were anti-religion, and, mm-hmm. and and anyway, it's clear that the Polish government of whatever stripe, center, left, or right, would have huge support from the people for standing up to Putin and helping their their neighbors. Mm-hmm. And of course, they share the longest Western border with Poland. Absolutely. And, and Poland, of course, has a role to play. Poland is a, a huge country. It uh, has a strong army. It has never neglected commitments for self-defense or for their NATO contribution. They know pretty well what they owe to NATO, as they know what they owe to America. And with the Baltic countries, it's, 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 it's somewhat identical. But there is one huge problem. All three Baltic countries, Lithuania, Estonia and Latvia, have a huge Russian-speaking and Russian-thinking um, minority. And I, I remember when I was there in the 90s when they were preparing for whatever independence and later for EU uh, uh, accession. That was a problem. These Russians never spoke a word of Latvian, Estonian or Lithuanian because in the Soviet Union, it was Russian that was the language, lingua franca. So that, that, that was a problem. Integration was a problem. And of course, that still is a problem uh, today uh, because uh, one would have expected, or I would have, wouldn't have, if Putin had been set to destabilize the Baltic countries, he wouldn't have used tanks probably, he would have used money to buy up politicians. And he did so, not at a very crucial level, but he did so every now and then, and there was huge scandals then, never really leaving the country, staying there, involving quite high-ranking people. Uh, So Putin could, of course, use a certain amount of the... uh, their population to destabilize or to try to destabilize the country. And that is now the point. They see themselves, of course, as the NATO's member state most exposed to a potential Russian aggression. Poland as well. But Poland is a much stronger, much bigger, and has no Russian minority. So the, the Baltic states feel threatened and uh, rightfully so, and, and, and many, in many respects threatened by, by, by Putin's agenda, if we, if we have understood correctly, is to restore the Soviet empire under his personal flag and crown and whatever. They would be part of it, not Poland. Poland was part of the Warsaw Pact. The days when the Russians cut Poland in half and took one and gave others other territories to Poland instead, they were over. The Baltic countries must have, must fear for their sovereignty. And they, so they, they would be so, annexed into the, as... Yeah, but the, the, I mean, if we... Into a new Russian we, empire. Reading Putin's mind is difficult, but if we continue his his thought at all Russian, that's one once belonged to Russia as a state, has to come back, it's the Baltic countries. And it's just Article 5 of NATO that stands in, 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 in his way. So they are very careful to open their borders to a Russian influx because of the ongoing problems they have. But it could happen any time. You, you mentioned this. They're very reluctant to open their border to more Russians because... They are closed. And they they have be. a... Well, they have this these Russian minorities that they're worried about mm-hmm. destabilizing the countries, talking about yeah. the Baltics. And this raises the final issue for today, which is what do we do about the potentially many brave and conscientious Russian mm-hmm. men who refuse to fight, who've ignored their call-up papers, draft mm-hmm. dodgers, no different perhaps than Americans who went to Canada during the Vietnam War because they refused to fight for whatever reasons, just didn't mm-hmm. want to participate in a war that they thought was unjust or they were cowards, who cares? So the question is, what does Europe now do about Russian men who want to flee and have been fleeing? And it's different for different countries. It's different for Germany. They have a different situation than, than as we said, the Baltics, who already worry about too many Russians 
on their teeny tiny countries. So what do you think about this? It's a very, very critical question, indeed. So what we see now is, uh, and we have to we have to probably cut it into various slices to, to look at it from different angles. Angle number one is when and why did someone leave Russia? B is, is does this fulfill the criteria of application for asylum according to the Dublin principle and how would this then work? And three is which of the EU member states is concerned and uh, are they con- are they concerned to a degree that this really is a problem? Uh, to start with the, with the latter one, uh, to my knowledge, roughly between 140 and 100,000 Russians with during these after the after the declaration of the partial mobilization by by, by Putin um, have left towards Western Europe. That's not very many. I think in total it's it's uh, a bit less than a million. Of course, we don't know exact numbers. We have to be very careful. But I mean, Kazakhstan has more than two or three hundred thousand. Kazakhstan is quite far away from Petersburg. So has Uzbekistan and all these former parts of the Soviet Empire. Turkey was the number one aim for the more for the for the more affluent because it uh, uh, an airline ticket. Let's start with these roughly 100,000, 120, 130,000 who came mostly, if you look at the borders, the Baltic states have a border and Latvia and Estonia mostly and Finland. Poland has no direct border with Russia except for the Zowalski uh, gap. Uh, so that would come from former German Eastern Prussia. But that has not, I've ne- never read a report from it because that's, that's a military camp. And they are there and they probably remain there. So what, they would come through Finland. There were huge miles of, of, of car queues in from the Finnish border. That's now closed. So the Finns have been very reluctant to take them in. And, and the Baltic countries, of course, for the already discussed reasons. The EU should be prepared to regulate what to do with those actually coming through. But let's face it. What the Germans now see, what we will be, of course, every application for asylum will be checked individually. That takes months, as we know. These people will have find it hard to document that they were had been under persecution from the Putin regime. And I want to stop you there because yeah. I want to stop you there because if the war is an illegal war, surely anyone who it can be conscripted has a legal justification to say it's not a legal war there. And if I don't serve in this illegal war, I will be imprisoned mm-hmm. or punished in some other way. Mm-hmm. That to me seems like a very clear grounds for yes. asylum. And I, I know now the partial mobilization has ended, but I'm thinking about maybe next year, what happens if, these new untrained Russians get butchered mm-hmm. en masse by the Ukrainians, and Putin has to do yet another call-up. If Indeed, we saw several hundred thousand men leaving this partial mobilization, imagine if there's a second one. So I, I, I'd like to address this issue now. I think EU, the EU and Germany and these countries should address it now to be prepared for another crisis. In the the EU has been quite outspoken. They would they are looking for methods how to to offer a status of whatever asylum or temporary residence and in the protect. Of course, they wouldn't send them back. Nobody has a right to do that. That is clear. The point is that the EU member states mentioned for reasons out of their own, from their judging from their own perspective alone, one could probably agree to or could have um, uh, an under, a, certain, a certain understanding for. The, the Germans now appear so generous is because they, are, they can lay back. How could a Russian draft dodger ever reach German soil? He would have to enter through the Baltic states or, or, or through Finland. Fly from Turkey. Yeah, that's a different story. He would lose all asylum. Uh, he's safe in Turkey. The Turks won't call him up. That is Dublin. Dublin says what the person is entitled to is 
immediate protection from suppression, persecution by his home country. Once in Turkey, he cannot go to Germany and say, well, listen, I'm persecuted in Russia, but I've come from Turkey where I have an apartment or where I live there. I haven't misunderstood how the law is interpreted or written. They only need uh, Turkey to get... isn't in, Turkey isn't part of the Dublin uh, Convention, but Turkey is is a safe country. Is a safe country. I thought it was the first EU country you mm -hmm. arrive in. Mm -hmm. It's any country that is a safe country. I mean, those in Kazakhstan. I don't think you can fly to Kazakhstan. I would wonder how, because the airspace will be closed over Russia, I believe. So, staying in Kazakhstan, of course, they have. Probably they know someone there. Why would they go there? Or they just run away? I I, how well? What would they live on? Those flying to Turkey, and you should have a look at what the one-way tickets prior to the uh, mobilization or immediately thereafter. What what was charged for a flight? Those Russians probably belong to a class where many better connected never had to fear uh, being called up. I mean, sons of oligarchs, well, they're not that many, but oligarchs and their entourage normally are protected from whatever such things, and they will not be sent to the, bat to the battlefield. It's still a class thing. The, it's, the, it's the poor and the, the, the non-connected who go, and now go to the, to the battlefield. If Putin were forced to make another partial mobilization, other people would be affected. So I think the EU is right. Those Russians now coming to Finland, because that is their sole escape route if they wish to go west, one would have to have a solution. And that could be that Finland and the Baltic countries may hand those over to other EU member states willing to integrate them. Why not take these young men and send them to Belgium if the EU pays for them and they will quickly start whatever work uh, they're mostly qualified that they must be i mean you have to find a solution that satisfies the baltic countries in their rather credible concern and finland because finland is a huge country with a small population and uh, so if they come you have to you'd have to lead them elsewhere within the union of course you have to check the background what they are so afraid of is that, the, you know, the term of the little green man. Those were the Russian soldiers without Russian army badges on their uniforms once occupying uh, uh, Crimea uh, in 2014. So you can never rule out that Putin sends people over. So you have to check the individual for the true identity and the whereabouts. Uh, that is a very time-consuming process. Okay. So, uh, very last quick question, and I will start with my prediction. I don't see this war ending within a year or so, a year and a half. What about you? Hard to tell. Much depends on the cohesion of the West, and above all, the American strength to support Ukraine with uh, adequate weaponry. This is of the essence. If the Ukrainians will be given what they need, and if the Germans can't get get up out, out of their uh, lethargy, why not take an Abramstang style for Leopard? Uh, they need they need decisive attack weapons to smash the Russians. Why? Because Russia wishes to draw the war out to make it as 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 lengthy as possible. Their sole option now is, and I don't consider all this nuke talk a serious option. That is suicidal. Uh, their sole option is wait long enough, the West will tire of this. Mm. And already we have symptoms of this. It's still uh, fractions of our society. But that is the that is the Russian, the sole aim, that is their lifeboat. Their cruiser is already uh, like the Titanic, bowed down and far and deep underwater. Militarily, they won't win anything anymore. But what they can do is they could they could let the Western alliance crack. You now have a number of Democrats wishing the government to negotiate directly with Putin, without Ukraine probably. I, we have the same in politicians in Germany. And please don't forget, 
to me, the image, the picture is there is a perpetrator, a criminal. There is a, a struggling victim, bleeding, and there is a policeman. And now the policeman starts to negotiate with the perpetrator. How many kicks he's still allowed to give? What of the stolen goods he may keep, and the, what we would like to, he would better go, give back. That's exactly how I see it too. And it's it's, as I said, it's it like blaming horrible. the it's like blaming the policeman for it's like yeah. I can't help beating you up. Uh, the policeman made me do it. It just yeah. I, it, uh, I, 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 it, it just makes you and I, it makes you wonder this this lustful desire for a rotten compromise you can never bank on again. I mean, who would who would believe in Putin's signature? I know, and I I struggle when people try to logically explain how these are good decisions. I'm just baffled because I have no way of, re of responding to this. No. But you know, I mean, anyone, you know, everyone, <laughs> if I were to punch someone on the street, it would be my responsibility and I would have to live up to those consequences. Most certainly so. Uh, but it's, uh, it's just, I think most uh, of these don't people understand. coming forth with such ideas, no, do so. And that's what a French friend of mine, a psychiatrist, told me on the phone yesterday. They do so out of their own agenda. They're completely detached with what's going on in Ukraine. That's far beneath them. They don't discuss such things. War is stupid. Their problems are the more intellectual. So the idea is, is my agenda still prominent enough in the world, the ongoing worldwide debate, or am I sinking down below surface level, far below surface level? And my, my agenda, my topics aren't, aren't looked at anymore. Nobody discusses my nonsense anymore, or my wonderful things. That is up to you to decide. Uh, we had debates galore on issues not worthy a discussion of 10 minutes. And now we have an, ex an, ex an, an essential crisis where it's life of death matter. The, the, the rule of terror or the rule of law. And if we give up this, what would the future look like? I'm going to claim the last word tonight, Gunther. Yes, you're right to do so. Anyone who wavers on or is wavering on hor on how horrible this war is, I encourage them to look at the photos coming out of Ukrainian prosthetics and amputee mm. centers and look at all the 19 and 20-year-old boys without arms and legs. Okay, we'll end it there. Thank you, Gunter. You're most welcome. All right. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Just so you know, once again, the views and opinions expressed on the show are those of the guests or the host, not the America Centrum, which does not take any institutional positions on politics or policy. Thanks again for listening.